Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Warm welcome to those joining us at Mayfair online as well. And of course, everybody here in the room at West Dallas. So glad they chose to worship with us this morning. Hey, we're in a four-part, a four-week series called Are You Tired? Like the, the question that Jacob asked. And I just want to give a roadmap for kind of where we're going. Last week, Pastor Frank asked the question of are you tired and presented the problem. And then today I'll, I'll present what I think is the solution. I could be wrong, so bear with me in that. And then next week and the week after that, we'll be entering into learning about a spiritual practice that I think God is inviting us into individually and collectively as a church to enter into his rest that he has for us. Would you mind picking up the Bible in front of you, either in your seatback pockets, on your smartphone? Don't worry, I won't, ref- I won't uh, I'll let you guys use your smartphone today. Uh, but go ahead and turn to Matthew 11, 27 to 30. If you're using our black Bibles in the seatbacks, you can turn to page 816. As you're turning there, if you don't mind, let's stand for the reading of Scripture together this morning. Ready? Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 to 30. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can go ahead and take a seat. Thank you, guys. Now, I promise we'll get back to our passage for today in Matthew 11, but we've got some setup before we get there. There is a small town in the middle of Italy called Rosetto. It's organized around a large plaza, a palace, and a church, and it is littered just with two-story homes up the hillside, and it's filled with hard quarry and field workers. In 1882, 11 Rosettans from that village came to the U.S. and settled in Pennsylvania. The next year, another 15 came over to join them. And in 1894, just 12 years later, 1,200 of them came to America. And they essentially left their village in Italy empty, but they recreated it in Pennsylvania, and they called it Rosetto. Over time, it became self-sufficient. And if you were to be dropped in Rosetto in the early 1900s, you would have thought that you were in Italy, not in the United States. And in the 1950s, a doctor discovered that amidst the epidemic of heart attacks in the United States, it was rare to find anybody in Rosetto under the age of 65 with heart disease. And it was discovered that virtually nobody under 55 died of a heart attack. And for those that were over 65, they had half the death rate from a heart disease, as did the rest of the United States. They ate less healthy than when they did in Italy. They ate more sweets. They smoked more. They struggled with obesity. The Rosettans were simply dying of old age, and nobody could figure it out. Eventually, this doctor began to walk around the town and discover what their secret was, though. They visited each other for hours. They cooked in each other's backyard. Sometimes up to three generations alone were living in a house, and there was just a deep respect for grandparents. In a town of 2,000 people, there were 22 separate civic organizations. That's 90 people per organization to be represented. The wealthy didn't flaunt their success, and they actually helped hide the failures of the unsuccessful. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Outlier, says regarding Rosetto that, quote, you have to appreciate the idea that community the values of the world we inhabit and the people we surround ourselves with has profound effect 
on who we are. This story, if I'm honest, makes me question my own way of life and how I can center it more around being with people and slow down enough to enjoy it as well. And I'm not saying to disregard what you put in your body, but it's important to recognize that we are more than just our bodies. But we also aren't less than our bodies, and I'll get to that later. I'm also drawn to this story because my grandpa on my dad's side of the family, we've got a picture of my grandpa. This is him in his early 20s, Papu, as we call him. Uh, He was a regular pipe smoker and wine drinker. And I'm not sure how, but he lived to be 92 years old. Now, I'm not saying that the wine and tobacco allowed him to live to be 92. If that's a habit that you have broken, do not go and take that up again. But what I am saying is that it wasn't the substances themselves, but it was the activities around the substances that allowed him to have time for contemplation and deep conversation, and it provided and cared for his soul on a deep, unnoticed, unmeasurable level. Here's another picture of Papu on a trip to Europe, probably about five years before his death, and this is how I remember him. I remember in third or fourth grade, I'm on a, a field trip to a state park, and I get off the bus, And I see Papu sitting at a picnic bench by himself, eating lunch, just enjoying nature. And I run up, he gives me a stubbly kiss on the cheek that always hurt. He calls me Andy because he always mistook our, uh, our names as grandkids. But he had a deep love for us. And I share these stories not because I think we should go start living in a village community, but because I think when we take stock of our lives, we all long for a life of meaning that is connected to God and other people. There's something about being in a community with God others that is just deeply impactful and good for our soul. I share this story, these stories, to show that there is probably another way of life than the one that we've been living, and Jesus is inviting us into his way of life. We just have to accept his invitation. The the Rosettans were and have been formed to a certain way of life. Papu was formed to a certain way of life. And last week, as Frank taught us, we're all being formed into something or someone, and if we're not intentional about that formation, often what we're formed formed into is a result of three negatives that are bent against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Whether we're aware of it or not, these three enemies have formed us toward evil and have negatively impacted the way that we view and interact with God, ourselves, and others. If you didn't get a chance to listen to Frank's message, please go back and listen to it from last week because it serves as the foundation for what we're talking about this morning. But the key thing to know is that we are all being formed unintentionally or intentionally. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus does not leave us in the state of being malformed. As we walk with him, we, we unlearn the ways of living that we learn from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he invites us into his way of life that is meant for our good and the good of those around him, around us. Through walking with him, our ways of interacting with God, ourselves, and others are shaped into the image of Jesus. If we've been formed one direction away from Christ-likeness, we need to understand the intentional process that we need to enter into to be formed toward Christ-likeness. I want to offer what I would call a working theory of change of how we can join God by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside us in his work of transforming us over the course of our lives. If you're here when I preached in November, this diagram might look familiar to you. And I can't give you a chapter and verse and where you might find this diagram in the Bible, but we can take cues from Jesus' life, his words, church history, and the rest of Scripture to see that it rings true. Here at Epicos, we engage in community through partaking in small groups. And if you have not signed up for a small group, please, I give you permission even now, whip out your phone, go to the hub.epicos.org, sign up for a group before 11.59 p.m. tonight. 
Each week when we come to church, we sit under biblical teaching and we allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate and shape our minds. And remember last week when Frank talked about Jesus withstanding Satan's temptations in the desert? In that situation, we see all three of these components at play. Jesus refuted Satan's lies with the truth of Scripture, biblical teaching. Secondly, that passage says that it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was led into the wilderness. And the same word for wilderness that's used there is the same word that's used when Jesus gets away with the Father when he gets up early to pray. God himself is a community. And third, Jesus was strengthened through one-on-one time with the Father through the practice of silence and solitude, spiritual practices. So it's through these three components, under the influence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we are transformed. And today, I want to zoom in on spiritual practices, and then the next two weeks, we'll spend time focusing on the spiritual practice of Sabbath. Spiritual practices are activities within our power that enable us to accomplish what we cannot do by direct effort because we meet with the actions of God with us. There's no complete list of practices for the spiritual life, but we can look at Jesus' life in over 2,000 years of church history and see that there are many practices that we can join in, and one of those is Sabbath. One key note on spiritual practices is that they are bodily. They require us to present our bodies before God. I'll give some examples. In silence and solitude, we quite literally remove ourselves from the presence of others and refrain from moving our mouths to speak. In fasting, we forego nourishment to our body to receive nourishment directly from God. And in the study of Scripture, we let the words of God infiltrate and shape our brains. In Sabbath, we remove our body from the work that we do day in and day out and simply allow it to rest. I was once told by a Bible professor that the best thing I could do for my spiritual health was to take a nap. And I was new to following Jesus probably about a year in, so I definitely thought he was going to say study, reading the Bible, prayer. But he didn't say that. He said to go take a nap. And what he was trying to help us realize was that our bodies have a deep impact on who we are, that we are embodied souls. Now, in the world today, there are two common approaches to how we view our bodies. The first is an over-sexualization of our bodies, that they're just meant for our our pleasure and simply to be used in that way. The second is a negation of our body as just carriers for our brains, as if we're just walking brains on a stick. The problem with our view of our bodies as just being for pleasure is that it's selfish and it's Uh, the the experience of sex is reserved for the marriage relationship. And the problem with the view of our bodies as just carriers for our brains is a little less obvious, but it implies that our bodies have no influence on who we become. The view of us as being brains on a stick even creeps its way into how we teach in the church. Oftentimes we teach as if more inspiration plus information will equal transformation. Like maybe if we just get the right head knowledge, then our lives will be different. But the biblical view of our bodies is that we are embodied souls and our bodies play a vital role in who we become. Either people of love formed in the image of Jesus or selfish people formed in the image of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm excited because this Friday we're going to be in the presence of God with everybody at Epicos at our all-campus worship night. And it's an opportunity that we get twice a year to be one church in one location. And I look forward to it, and I know that you do as well, but I have to be honest with you. If you're looking for the worship night to get into the right emotional state or really experiencing God during worship, and you're not also living with God in daily life, you're missing out on the good of the rhythms, habits, patterns, and practices that God is inviting you into. As much as we need the sort of mountaintop experiences like a worship night, we also need to walk with Jesus in the concrete circumstances of our life. 
It's the same with Christian conferences. They are right and good for us. But if we just go hoping to download the right information from the prominent Christian speaker, hoping that maybe that'll change us, we will be disappointed. Because two weeks later, we're back in that same sin pattern we said we would never dive back into. Our desire to see our friends and family come to know Jesus is gone. And we're just scraping by trying to manage the sin in our life until the next event. I'm genuinely not trying to sound critical. God has used those mountaintop experiences of conferences and worship nights to alter the course of my life, but I've come to realize this. Good circumstances and experiences are not a solid foundation on which to build a life. I want you to hear me clearly. Good circumstances and experiences are not a solid foundation on which to build a life. Christian conferences and worship nights are not bad. In fact, they're very beneficial as long as we put them in their proper place and realize that the majority of our life is lived in the valley. After this series, Are You Tired? We're going to be jumping into the book of Exodus and we're going to see in part of that story that Moses had to come down off the mountain after a special time of meeting with God. And we have to do the same. Those experiences are good, but they cannot sustain us. Relying on those experiences, like going to the gym once a month for six to eight hours, instead of having a regular weekly routine of going to the gym. So if good circumstances are not a solid foundation on which to build a life, then what is? We need to get back to the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that there is a different way of living that's been made available to us, not just because of Jesus' death on the cross, but through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the life that he's still living today. We don't have to live according to the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil, which lead to us just scraping by trying to manage our sin. Jesus came and said that he came to give us life and life abundantly. But that's not often our experience, right? We're overworked, we're overtired, we feel distant from the, lun- the ones we love and the life that we long for. But I would argue that that experience is because we've been following our own way handed to us by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil in the way that we've been malformed. And we need to understand the full scope of the gospel as Jesus offers it to us. I wasn't raised in a Jesus-following household, and I only went to church when I would spend the night at my grandma's house. And I remember distinctly being in seventh grade, and my grandma had invited her pastor over to talk to me about receiving salvation and coming to know Jesus. And at one point in the conversation, he asked me, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you know what my answer was? I said, I don't know. He said, you kind of need to know that. And to make my grandma happy, I said, okay, sure. And he went on to pray the sinner's prayer, what's become known as the sinner's prayer with me. And that's okay, right? While in hindsight, I think my grandma's pastor probably should have spent a little more time with me because I had no idea what I was actually doing, I'm still thankful for that moment because I genuinely believe it was at that moment that God began to open a door in my life so that five years later, I would, of my own volition and free choice, choose to follow him. So I'm not trying to negate that moment in my life, in anybody else's life, or your life. It's just not the complete picture of biblical salvation. Praying that prayer was like getting a gym membership. Just like if I don't actually go to the gym, I won't get fit. If I don't actually partake in the activities of following Jesus, I will not become like him. While the typical version of the gospel that's preached is that we are sinners in need of a savior, that God is holy and we are guilty before him, that he is just and payment for our sins must be made, that he took our place on the cross, died the death we deserve to die, and made a way for us to be justified and saved from our sin. While that is wildly true, it is woefully incomplete. My problem with that presentation of the gospel isn't that it's wrong, but that it's too small. 
I take issue with how the gospel has been presented in the Western world over the last 30 to 50 years because it's often been presented as a uh, one-time salvation moment or a get-out-of-hell-free card. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace and said that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He went on to say, when Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him come and die. Dallas Willard said that if our preaching of the gospel does not lead people to apprentice under Jesus as the logical next step, then we are not preaching the gospel of Jesus. We are preaching a different gospel. In our day, it's been made possible to be a Christian without being a follower of Jesus. So what does all this mean? It means that the gospel is just as much, if not more, about giving up our lives to follow Jesus as it is about escaping hell and making it into heaven. So what is the gospel according to Jesus? We get his direct definition in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, here's Jesus' definition of the gospel, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So according to Jesus, the gospel is simply the availability of the kingdom of God to those who repent and believe. The question is then, what does it mean to repent and believe? Often when we hear repent, I think we think of doing away with our sin, getting ourselves in line, cleaning ourselves up. But when Jesus preached repentance, is because of the availability of the kingdom of God, the fact that God has come close. Repentance can be described as to rethink your understanding about life and the way things really are. It is a joyful and intentional adjustment of our lives to the reality of God coming close, the reality of an invitation of a different way of life. Repentance is for sure a turning away from our sin, but it's a turning away from our sin because we see that it's against the holy God, other people made in God's image, and it's against what's best for us. And to believe is simply to trust that what Jesus is saying is actually true, to trust him at his invitation to a different way of life. So while it's true that we need rescuing and redemption to have our debts erased on the cross, it's equally true that once we're in the family of God, we are to live with and for him. Let me put it this way. Being a disciple or entering into discipleship describes a person's status that they enter into when they repent and believe. When they change their way of thinking about the world and trust in God. Spiritual formation, on the other hand, is a process that happens to a person with the status of disciple. In Jesus' mind, to be a disciple is to be a learner, but somehow in the Western church, we've often come to believe that discipleship ends with conversion. One author writes that conversion is not the touchdown of the Christian life, it is the kickoff. Adoption into the family is not the end of life, it is the beginning. Now, all illustrations and metaphors fall short, but I think this one is helpful. About three years ago, my wife and I became members at the gym called the Princeton Club, and I have yet to take advantage of the many benefits that they offer, and part of the reason I don't take advantage of them is simply because they're unfamiliar to me. Now, my wife told me how I, get, how I just needed to try the steam room, how she was transported to this different world when she spent time in the steam room, and it offered her time to pray and meditate and be with God, and it probably took me close to a year to actually believe her. But when I repented and believed... It changed my life. I came to understand that because of my status as a member at the Princeton Club, I could enter into the process of using that membership, and time in the steam room has become a spiritual practice for me because I present my body to God, sit in the steam room, and there's not much else I can do besides sit and pray for 15 minutes. 
And I think life in the kingdom of God is very similar to this. There are spiritual practices that are just waiting for us to walk into them that God is inviting us into. And if we can begin to view the cross as a doorway into a different way of life instead of the closing of a book, we can begin to understand that the gospel is not just about going to heaven when we die, but it's eternal life now. And Jesus defined eternal life as simply knowing God. And it's through biblical teaching, through community, and engagement with spiritual practices that we come to know and become like him. When we use the language of saved versus not saved, we tend to uh, not see our need to be continually rescued from the enslaving powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil that have been embodied in our lives. But in Jesus, we are saved when we initially put our faith in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, talks about being saved, referring to our ongoing sanctification or spiritual formation. And we will be saved when we enter into glory. Salvation is not just a one-time event as it's often portrayed. Instead, it is an interactive life with God participating in his ways and his cause in the very existence of our life. The biblical word for salvation is deliverance. And it implies a one-time and an ongoing need to be delivered from our sinful habits, patterns, and practices that are embedded deep within us. I look at this super blurry picture up on the screen of an, of an ordinary living room at my grandma's house, and I look at it with thankfulness because I believe it's in that exact chair that I began to have a work done in my heart by God so that five years from that point, I would choose to follow him. And years later, when I decided to trust and follow Jesus, I became a disciple and took up Jesus' invitation to a different life other than the one I had carved out for myself. And what does that life look like? It looks at, like we might become a different person, that we might learn his way of life, that we might adopt his way of life, and it's what Jesus is talking about in our passage this morning. I told you we'd get back to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's a picture of a yoke that Jesus would have been referencing. And a yoke isn't really language that we're familiar with, uh, but listening to him, the people would have known exactly what he was doing. Oftentimes there was a yoke put through each of the, uh, an oxen put in through each of the holes of the yoke. One would have had an older experienced oxen and the other side would have had a younger inexperienced oxen so that the older one could teach the younger one its ways as they were plowing a field. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing with this metaphor. He was telling the people that when we place our trust in him, when we decide to follow his way of life, that he will be that older oxen teaching us his ways. But I think it's easy to pass off this language as not meaning anything, because if we're honest, it seems like Jesus is lying. We've been walking with Jesus, but our experience of life, even life with him, is anything but restful. But I would argue that it's because we've never actually allowed Jesus to put his yoke upon us. Putting on Jesus' yoke is about adopting his overall lifestyle and learning to live our lives as if he were living them. If we want the life of Jesus, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And whether we realize it or not, we're all yoked to something or someone that is directing our lives. Maybe it's our careers, our family, our friends, our sinful habits or patterns, seeking after larger-than-life experiences. Whatever it is, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as Frank talked about last week, are bent on getting us to submit ourselves to our own yoke, attempting to do life on our own instead of yoking ourselves to Jesus. But Jesus is inviting us to take on his yoke, and when we do, it'll be uncomfortable at first. But because Jesus is the master carpenter and knows us better than we could ever know ourselves, 
He has contoured and shaped the wood of his specific yoke to us. A carpenter in the, day, in the days when yokes were used would have contoured the yoke in such a way that it fit the oxen that was going to be using it as comfortably as possible. And in much the same way, Jesus is inviting us into a specific calling and role within the family of God. Remember that the gospel, according to Jesus, is the availability of the kingdom of God to those who repent and believe. To repent is to change our mind about reality so that it aligns with the kingdom of God. And to believe is to simply trust that Jesus has our best in mind. To trust Jesus is to take up his yoke, his cause, his way of doing life. So slowly, over time, living life his way, we will be spiritually formed or sanctified into the image of Jesus. Last week, Frank defined sanctification, what I'm calling spiritual formation, use whichever language you like, as the work where God uses our habits, patterns, and practices to shape us into Christ-likeness. Jesus didn't die so that we wouldn't have to. He died so that we would die with him and enter into a different way of life. But as Jesus says in our passage, he is gentle and lowly in heart. He will not force our hand. He allows an invitation to be just that, an invitation. We don't have to accept his invitation. We have to want the life that he's offering. I have a vision for what it would be like to to speak Spanish fluently, and believe it or not, my undergraduate degree is in Spanish and international studies. I uh, lived in Costa Rica for four months. I've got Duolingo on my phone. I could get around if you drop me in a Spanish-speaking country, but if you come up to me after service and you start trying to speak to me in Spanish, it's going to be a very disjointed conversation. And although I say I want to speak Spanish fluently, I clearly don't, because if I did, I could be speaking to you in Spanish right now. Now, I know what I have to do to reach fluency, but I have to want it bad enough that it actually changes the way that I live. I have to want it bad enough that I actually spend 15 minutes a day reading a book in Spanish, talking with somebody for an hour or two in a live chat uh, with a Spanish speaker, uh, re-watching my favorite shows dubbed over in Spanish, or maybe finding a language group here in Milwaukee or just spending some time at CIRMAC or El Rey. If I want the life of a Spanish speaker, I have to adopt the lifestyle of a Spanish speaker. And the same is true of being spiritually formed into the image of Jesus. If I want the life of Jesus, I have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If we don't do something to grow in Christ-likeness, nothing will happen. But if we do something, if we engage with biblical teaching, community, and spiritual practices, we can trust that the kingdom of God has come close and the Trinity will be working with us to transform us from the inside out. It would not be an Adam sermon without a Dallas Willard quote. So here we go. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right in the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. Jesus is very upfront that he is a way of life, and if we are to follow him, we have to give up ours. He made it very clear that he will have no rivals. We cannot serve something or someone else and Jesus at the same time, yet God does not force our hand. He patiently waits for us to accept his invitation. And yet he doesn't leave us on our own. So where and how do we begin? We start by recognizing that God has yet to bless anyone other than where they currently are, and God can only meet us in the concrete circumstances of our life. I need you to hear this. It is good that you are who you are, and that is enough under God, because it's in the midst of the life that you live that God will meet you and that you can meet with God. 
The everyday embodied experience of our existence is the environment through which God meets us, not some far away distant place or future that's better, whatever that means for you. And I didn't show you all the pictures I did today just because I wanted to, but to help you see that God wants to meet you right where you are in the here and now, in the midst of the shortcomings and triumphs of your life, in the midst of the circumstances of your family, your friends, your job, your, your highs, your lows, your successes, your failures. On a theological level, it's easy to learn about who God is and who we are as human beings made in his image and then forget that the overlap of the two happens in the real fabric of our existence. Our spirituality is embodied. As I said earlier today, we want to focus on the spiritual practice part of our working theory of change. And while it's true that we come to know and spend time with God through engaging with biblical teaching and being in community with other people, engagement with the spiritual practices is just as vital, though it's been wildly misunderstood. I've said it before, and I will say it for the rest of my life. We approach spiritual practices from a place of invitation, not obligation. They are not righteousness in themselves. They simply enable us to be with God. We can turn to spiritual practices to inhabit Jesus' way of life. God is not our taskmaster. God is our caring father. He's inviting us to give up the ways that we've lived under the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he's inviting us to see how we might experience abundant life under the influence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to do more. It is a call to do less. One of the signs of a healthy use of spiritual practice is how you feel when you don't do them. And if you feel guilt, you need to rethink it because guilt is not a profitable motivation for the spiritual life. When I miss Sabbath, I don't feel guilt, but I feel sadness because it's a day I look forward to because it gives me and my family time and space to rest, to worship, and to delight in all that God has given us. I'm a whole different person the other six days of the week when I actually get to Sabbath. So please, do not stop at the doorway that is the salvation moment. Use your membership in the kingdom of God, the status you have as a disciple to discover all that God has for you to know him deeper and to be formed into his image through engaging with spiritual practices. Just as there are areas of the Princeton Club that I've yet to use, there are spiritual practices that I've yet to try out. And that's okay. Over the next two weeks, we're simply inviting you to dip your toes into the waters of Sabbath and see how the Lord might meet you in the midst of it. We're not looking to add something to your already busy schedule, but to help you simplify your schedule around being with God and other people. I find it interesting that directly after Jesus' words at, at the end of Matthew 11, the end of our passage today, he goes on to talk about the importance and meaning of Sabbath. It's almost as if Sabbath is the doorway into experiencing the rest, ease, and lightness that Jesus talks about. Each small group season, we send an evaluation to both small group leaders and small group members. And one of the questions that we ask is this, what is your main block or barrier to knowing and following Jesus deeper? Now, you might not remember, but these are some of the answers that you guys shared with us. Don't worry, they're shared anonymously. But here's some of the answers. Sometimes I allow my life to get busy and stop prioritizing personal time with God and spiritual practices. Feeling like I don't have time. My own busyness and not prioritizing time in community, scripture, and prayer. Laziness in a busy schedule. Letting the busyness of daily life get in the way. One day I will wake up and I will be a certain kind of husband, a certain kind of father, a certain kind of brother, a certain kind of friend, a certain kind of pastor. And I hope that on that day when I wake up and I look in the mirror that I like who I'm looking back at. 
I know the life, of, uh, the life I want to live and the person of love that I want to become. And instead of just living life, scraping by, hoping to manage my sin, I'm going to live with as much intentionality as I can into this threefold nature of spiritual formation into the image of Jesus. My desire is that, like Papu, when I'm 92 years old, having lived some 70 years with Jesus, and I'm enjoying a glass of wine on my patio, and after people have spent time with me, that they walk away having experienced just a little taste of who Jesus is. And then when my time is up, I am joyfully content, never to be spoken of again, knowing that the work is God's and not mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Trinity. We thank you for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you made a way for us to be cleansed from our sin, that we might be made right with you and enter into relationship with you. But I pray that we don't stop there. I pray that we take advantage of our status as your disciples, as your followers, to truly be transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus. And as we engage in spiritual practices, biblical teaching, and community, would you just shape us in ways that we never thought possible? May we experience abundant life that only you can offer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.